0: This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.
1: This program contains themes of an adult nature, Word for Word is an in-depth look into the lives of real people, which means this episode may contain explicit accounts of real-life events, including alcohol and drug use. The language used at times may cause some offence, but has been left uncensored due to the accuracy of the story. No offence is intended, and we hope you enjoy the program.
0: Across Australia on the Community Radio Network to over 70 community stations around the nation, this is Word for Word. Coming to you from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Welcome, family and friends, fans and fiends, to today's edition of Word for Word. I want to thank you for tuning in today.
2: I am Benjamin Norris, and it's simply a delight to continue to work on this show for the Joy Network, which has already featured some of the community's strongest voices. In the tradition of this ongoing program, I continue to look at powerful stories and insights into the life and lifestyle of some incredible people. Each week we will chat with those in and around our community who have inspired us, entertained us, but mostly they've made an impact on the queer community of Australia. Today's guest is one of them. This man was born in Melbourne, and while you may know him for his journalistic work as the editor of Star Observer, you might have also heard him on Joy 94.9 as he frequents the airwaves. But what you probably wouldn't know is that he's one of the hardest working gay men in the queer community space always looking for fairness and diversity and balancing complex stories in his storytelling. What this man does well is use all of his knowledge and skill set to break down stereotypes and make news about our community easily understood and totally accessible. So it's no surprise that he has won an award for Think HQ Media Excellence at the 2018 Globe Awards, and this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the recognition he deserves for his work in the media. I'd like to welcome you... And I'd like to welcome Matthew Wade to Word for Word.
1: I always thought I'd love to work in a role where I can write about social issues, particularly affect the LGBTI community. Have you been and what's in the news this week? Um, There's a lot going on in the news this week, actually. What I'm most passionate about and what I'm most proud about working for the Star Observer now, as I have been for the last several years, is not only my own story but that we can share other people's stories that don't necessarily get the same platform
2: They're a great diverse piece of content that's coming out of Star Observer so you and the team are doing a fantastic job
1: you know what everyone needs to be talking about sex a lot more you know everyone has a lot of stigma and shame around it and I'm like if we talk about it more with our friends our family our peers then people will be more educated about sex and not feel as weird about it and the winner for this is Matthew
2: you know what makes me laugh when I think of you like what? I always think of, you know, when you were looking on Twitter yeah. and you saw Matthew Wade trending and you were ah, like, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> you share the same name as Matthew Wade, the cricketer. Do you know what makes me laugh about that? Is you were like, "Alrighty, we need to make a viral video and throw a ball at me, and I'll hit it."
1: Oh, that was awful! Oh, my my cringy <laughs> little cr- attempt at uh, hitting the bat. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> my dad would be so ashamed. Uh, he's a big <laughs> sports fan, and I know that like any time we used to play like backyard cricket, whatever, I was terrible. And unfortunately, that was captured on video the- a few weeks ago. With that, like, I'm just I have no hand-eye coordination. Dad didn't get the sports star that he probably had He out. do whatever. Yeah, he did.
2: Completely. So we're going to get into some of that because we're going to talk more about your family as we go on. But where was it that you grew up? You grew up in the west of Melbourne, didn't you?
1: Originally, yes. But for most, like throughout high school and stuff, I was actually in regional Victoria, kind of outside of Geelong. I'm not sure if people know, like Clifton Springs, it's near Port Arlington. Yeah, I know where that is. So, we grew up there. So, that was where I went to high school and late primary school as well. But prior to that, it was, yeah, western suburbs of Melbourne.
2: Why did your parents decide to make the sea change? Did they watch that TV show with Secret Thought? Oh, my
1: goodness. I actually don't know because I was too young. to I, I, I wondered that as well. I wasn't sure at the time because I was young. I was like, I would have been like seven or eight. But they were like, I think they just liked the idea of moving somewhere that was more scenic and nice so they could relax as they kind of grow older. <laughs> what was
2: your childhood like?
1: It was good. Like, I actually had a really nice childhood. And my sister and I, my elder sister, Steph and I, we were always very theatrical. Like, we really liked singing and dancing, and we took singing. I just did singing and dancing classes for maybe like six years.
2: Didn't um, you do Young Talent Time or something? Yeah, it
1: was Johnny Young Talent School. Yeah. So, we'd go to classes every week. We put on productions. It was super fun. Like, I, I actually really loved that. So, I kind of always was interested in, I guess, media, performing, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, that was actually really fun. When I was younger, that was what I, what I got derived the most joy from was performing, connecting with people. But then when I moved to. The peninsula like I kind of put that away and that was when I started high school really and that was like my family were great but our uh, high school wasn't that great I mean I think because it was kind of like a country-ish town and to be honest my high school was dominated by straight white people it didn't feel very diverse and so I wasn't really exposed to kind of a diversity in culture diversity in experiences or identities I think there was one openly LGBT person in the entire school so It was one of those things where, yeah, I just felt being aware that I was obviously Mm. different. I didn't have any point of reference. Like, there was no one in my school that I could be like, oh, I might be like them. So, at least I can talk to them. Like, there was just no one like me there. As much as high school was a rough experience, something that I am proud of is that throughout that time, I was very resolute about who I was. Like, there was Mm. never a period early in high school, middle of high school, even at the end where I was kind of unsure, like oh, maybe I should kind of change the way I'm behaving or change how I'm coming across to people to try to make them accept me more. And I was very much like, this is who I am. I feel I have these values. I feel strongly about this. And I did from a young age too. A lot of people kind of developed that as they moved beyond high school, but I was really quite staunch in my opinion and my views and resolute about them. Even though on a daily basis, I'd get people calling me things or being generally negative towards me so at school
2: you'd have people pulling you aside and calling you out on your sexuality
1: yeah different things like, i remember it was probably like the first or second week of the first year of high school when i was in class and i think that was when it f- the idea that i potentially might be gay first was raised and i still remember it so vividly because one of the girls was like oh asked me point blank like are you gay and at that point i was still in the in year seven in year seven so i was wow. still at the point of not even knowing exactly i was kind of I knew I was different, but I hadn't fully identified. I didn't have the language to necessarily know that that was what I was. I just mm. knew that I was a bit different. So at the time, I said no. But from that point, as soon as that classmate had planted the seed that I might be, that was it. It kind of that for almost every day since then, for the next four or five years, there were just really yeah, people would make jokes, people would say things in the classroom, in the schoolyard, things like that. So I kind of had a very small group of friends, and we kind of kept to ourselves mostly because for me most of the time going to school, aside from the learning part, like I enjoyed actually going to class and learning. But outside of that, the social element, I actually really didn't enjoy because the idea of being around people that a lot of them didn't like me because they thought that I was gay. there would be times when I'd go home like late at night. And I actually didn't articulate this to my family at all the time. Like my twin sister, who was at, obviously at high school with me as well, she was privy to the fact that I wasn't, having a great time but i kind of kept it very much bottled up because i thought by externalizing it and saying to my parents or saying to a teacher like oh look i'm having a really hard time people are saying these awful things to me would almost make it real and make it more of a dramatic thing whereas i'm like if i just keep it inside and i kind of get through the next however many years it is then once that's over i can kind of move past that and i I say that because i was sure who i was i wasn't like oh i don't want to be gay once i realized i was gay i'm like i'm gay that's how it is and i'm like There's always going to be people that are crap, but if I can just move past these next few years, then hopefully beyond that, I I don't have to see these people again. So,
2: Interestingly enough, when you say that, you knew you were gay at a certain age. So, what age was that?
1: It was probably in year seven, to be honest. And I don't think it was because of the classmate who suggested that I might be early in that year. But over the course of that year, I guess I was hearing it so much. And obviously, I was beginning to go through puberty that it kind of like was like it just, yeah, it, it clicked at some point. Like I was just like... I mean, I like to say that one of the earliest periods I kind of had where I was like, oh, maybe I might be, was watching the music video from Ricky Martin, you know, Live in La Vida Loca. This oh, is before yeah. I re- even knew, had the language okay. to identify, but.
2: You're having a real gay moment. When then. he's dancing in the <laughs> rain, I was like,
1: I remember thinking I was like strangely drawn to that, but it wasn't until I was, yeah, in year seven, I think it would have been when I was like, okay, this is what this is. And then I knew it wasn't going to change. Like that was who I was. But yeah, that was, it was quite early. I mean, I know some people have identified, you know, feeling same-sex attraction earlier than that even, but I think it was, yeah, it was really year seven. And to be honest, I, again, those experiences, you know, people on the on a, on a consistent basis, you know, denigrating me or making these really crappy comments about my sexuality, mm. um, even before I'd, I'd validated it to them, it was not great, obviously, but quite frankly, like I'm, glad in a way that it happened because in many ways it has reinforced who i am as a person it was kind of like
2: mentally preparing you
1: it was almost like an f you to them because when i was going through high school and i was copying all of this i was like well you know what i'm not going to change and be somebody else just so that to duplicate them i'm like i know who i am i know how i feel i wasn't a, i wasn't a confrontational person i'm not now to be honest but i was like not at all i'm not confrontational <laughs> but i was like i'm just not going to give them the time of day because i know who i am and honestly once i've passed high school and i can blossom you know excuse like the cheesy expression but when i blossom and i'm able to go out and be myself 100 percent, then they'll be you know forget them like who cares which is easiest it's easy for me to say i know a lot of people don't have that experience i know even now like it can be really, really difficult for people to navigate high school when you're queer or same-sex attracted. But I'm kind of grateful in a sense that I had that experience in Clifton Springs because, yeah, it just reinforced who I was as a person and it kind of made me dig my heels into the ground a bit more and be like, well, I'm not going to change who I am or who I believe. And I remember my sister's, my older sister actually saying this at the time. It was when I was later in high school. Maybe it was just afterwards. I think it was after they all knew that I was gay. She was kind of like, oh, you know, she respected that even though she wasn't aware of what I was going through. She could tell that I was very sure of who I was throughout that period of time. Like, wow. I never, because you know how people mm. kind of, you know, particularly in high school, like you're developing, you're not sure who you want to be. So you kind of go through different phases, not even in terms of sexuality. I mean, just in terms of who you are, what mm. your interests are. She's like, no, you kind of were very consistent. Like, you could tell the kind of person that you were. And I, I don't even think I've changed much since then. And I've grown and I've matured and I've had world exper- worldly experiences, <laughs> but I'm still, I still am at the heart, like the same person. So, yeah.
2: Stay true to yourself. Where do you think that came from?
1: Um, that's an interesting point. I am a an interesting question, sorry. I'm not sure, I guess. I mean, my parents are very much like that. Like, my parents have been the same ever since I've known them, and they've been very strong in their beliefs as well. Um, and they've also given myself and my sisters. I mean, I mentioned, you know, for years I was doing singing and dancing, and for some parents they might not even be interested in sending their son to something like that, but they're always very, you know, supportive of that. And I think because they fostered that environment of inclusion and acceptance in terms of letting me do what I wanted to do, that helped me kind of find who I was at an earlier age. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, do you think that they had any idea about your sexuality or do you think that they had determined what you might have been?
1: Interestingly, uh, no, only because when I did ultimately come out to them, which was late in high school... The first thing they thought, they actually thought I was joking when I told them because... Um, okay,
2: tell me this moment. So, you got to tell your parents that you're gay. And yeah, how old are you? I'm
1: in the, I mean, the country town. I was 17, I must have been. It was literally towards the end of high school. So, right. I thought, okay, look, if I tell them now and they aren't accepting for whatever reason, I'm about to finish high school anyway, so I can, I'm going to leave. Flee to the city. Going to uni, exactly. The cliche, <laughs> I know. But I was like, well, I can leave, so it's fine.
2: So, how do you tell your parents that you're gay?
1: Well, maybe embarrassingly... Before they weren't home, I was home by myself and I was like, okay, look, I'd been kind of planning it in my mind for months, but I just hadn't found the right time to do Mm. it. And they were out one day and I was like, look, let's just do it. I was talking to myself, obviously. And there was some... Do they
2: say that's a sign of madness, talking to yourself?
1: Oh, well, then I'm mad because I talk to myself all
2: the time. Actually, no, I think they say that's a sign of intelligence if you talk to yourself. okay.
1: Well, that's better. But I I do, I have a tendency to talk to myself a lot. I'm sorry. But that day I was just, yeah, running through it in my mind. I was like, what should I do? You know, today the day. And I thought, oh, maybe if I have some kind of liquid courage, it might help. So, I drank a little bit, which is probably not good because I was 17. But honestly, because it was such a scary or frightening prospect telling them, I had a few drinks, which at that time was like a lot for me because I didn't drink. And then by the time they got home, I was, I'd was i sobered up completely because I knew what I was about to say. The it nerves no are running through yeah, the adrenaline, arm. Yeah, it was yeah. like that. So, they were sitting outside and I just went and I said, oh, hey, i um,
2: Bit of small talk, how you been? It was
1: like that, I couldn't say it straight away, so I kind of (laughs) just thought, oh, if I just kind of banter for a little while and then just randomly drop it on them, maybe that'll be the easier way to do it rather than have this big Mm. build-up. So I was kind of like, oh, you know, blah, blah, how was your trip out here, what happened? And I was like, oh, by the way, I'm gay. And there's like this silence for a while and they were like, oh. And then I remember the first thing my mom said was, you know, are you joking? And she didn't mean that in a way like, oh, are you joking? Like outraged, but more than... This- she thought
2: you were being humorous. Yeah, she thought I was
1: trying to make a joke. You're just and pulling was-
2: your leg, mom. Yeah, but like... Yeah. I'm I a said- homo.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, why would I joke about this? Like, this is not a joke. And then they're like, oh. And then my dad said, no, no. I, sorry, interjected because they weren't saying anything. I was like, is is that okay? Like, I mean, did you think that I might be already? Because I honestly thought that they must have known, as I mentioned, not to pander to stereotypes, but I was singing and dancing from the age of six. Like, uh, you know, I loved all the big divas, um, even the films I liked. Like, they were very cliche and stereotypically gay. Mm. I mean, you know. So, I said to them, oh, you know, you must have had an idea. Like, did you know beforehand? And they were like, no. And Dad actually said... He thought the reason that I listened to artists, like, for example, at the time, the Pussycat Dolls and things like that, was because I actually liked to look at the women. Oh,
2: you were sexually into the women.
1: That's what he thought. And didn't I was like, realize
2: that you wanted to be the women. Well,
1: exactly. When I grew up, um, <laughs> I was like, Dad, no, that is not why I was listening to that music. The reason I like those artists is not because I was looking at the women. And I think their reaction, I mean, Dad didn't say much at the time, but I, I, the one thing I do remember is they did say, you know, they still loved me and supported me. But mum was like, at the time, oh, just so long as you know, you don't you know go you're not going to go marching down mardi gras with all like the glitter and that kind of stuff because i think in their mind not having had much exposure to any gay people their mm. only exposure would have been mardi the, gras flamboyant that. very mm. and that can sound like a really extreme level of gay you know not that it, there's anything wrong with that i mean it's great but to them as someone who hadn't exposed they had been exposed to that they're just like oh, as long as you don't do that
2: what about you personally for you going to mardi gras is it in your character is it in your nature to want to be sexualized and to be wearing those outrageous outfits when
1: i was in clifton springs no because i guess that like similar to my parents i mean that was the only exposure that i'd had mm. so i guess for me i was like as someone who was really into reading and i enjoyed performing and that kind of stuff but um i was a bit more of a nerd like i was very bookish so like okay. for me the idea of just wearing underwear and Throwing a J-banger
2: down right. Oxford Street.
1: That, sounded, that came across as really confronting to me as someone who hadn't sure. met any other gay people. Like, I literally had no experiences in the community or with anyone in the community. So, yes, when mum said that, I was like, oh, no, no, yeah, that's not my thing or whatever, which, funnily enough, and then I end up, you know, working for an <laughs> LGBTI organisation, volunteering for them, marching, whatever. But, um, but you can
2: still have, I mean, you can be a little bit conservative, still being an advocate or an activist or anything like that?
1: Well, it's funny because when I left, and maybe this is, again, a cliche, but when I left high school and went to uni and started to meet new people, in terms of the way that I perceived the community like that, I mean, obviously now I'm aware that it's so much more diverse than Mardi Gras, but also I embraced that kind of part of the culture as well. Like, I think I've become... Probably those first years of uni, I became so much more sex positive and so much more open to... Yeah, body positivity and just mm. the community, the way they embrace kind of the way the, that unashamedness. Whereas in high school, because I had no other exposure to gay people, like my only exposure was that. And when my, so my mum said, oh, you know, just as long as you're not going to go in that, um, I agreed. But then, funnily enough, yeah, I kind of forced them to be cool with it because I then proceeded to, you know, do every LGBTI thing I could. And they actually, I, I didn't force them to be cool with it. They ultimately...
2: But they became positive. I mean, yeah, they percent they like a lot of the articles that you write mm-hmm. and they're very supportive in that way, which is kind of the support that you want. I mean, you don't necessarily need them to call you up and talk you through your homo lifestyle, you know? Well,
1: it's funny you say that because I remember when I was going through my, I mean, I'm still, of course, very sex positive now, but when I was... After I'd had my first kind of sexual experiences, which I think my first real sexual experience was when I was 19, so it would have been that first year of university... I just developed this, like, intense sex positivity, and I was like, you know what, everyone needs to be talking about sex a lot more, you know, everyone has a lot of stigma and shame around it, and I'm like, if we talk about it more with our friends, our family, our peers, then people will be more educated about sex and not feel as weird about it, so there's a period where, I, like, when I would go back to Clifton Springs to visit my parents, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to start talking to my parents, or my mom at least, about what I've been up to on the weekend when I've been going to the peel and stuff like this, and it was... A little bit awkward, um, but in my mind, I thought, well, if I kind of ease, if I just, rather than ease her into it, I'm just like, oh, yeah, so I met this person on the weekend, this happened, whatever.
2: But did you go into explicit details with your To mom? an extent,
1: yeah. I didn't, like, literally, I didn't go blow by blow, so to speak, but I was kind of like, oh, you know, I met up with this person, we hooked up, we went to, like, back to his place, or we, there are times when I would even, you know, ex- describe, you know, hooking up with somebody... Not in a bedroom, like maybe in a a bathroom or something like that. Um, And I've spoken to my siblings as well about, you know, visiting sex on premises venues and things like this. Because in my mind, and I still feel the same way to an extent, but being open about sex, I think it just fosters such an open-minded environment when it comes to sex. Like everyone just feels like it's a very private, behind-closed-doors thing. But in my mind, especially because we are part of this queer community the more we talk about it with friends and peers and whomever, yeah, just the more stigma and shame that's taken out of it. And I also feel like in the gay community, there is a lot of stigma and shame around sexual promiscuity or people Mm. that have sex that are outside of monogamy. So, I thought if I did that a little bit when I went to uni, I thought if I started to speak a bit more about them, them, that might also help my parents jump on board. Not that they weren't, but, you know, just be more cool with me just talking more openly about being uh, gay. You don't Um, think
2: that they ever were like tmi matthew i know
1: there definitely were but i just thought in my mind I'm like well early days like if i keep doing it maybe they'll be okay but in saying that like you mentioned i mean these days you know yeah you're right they they like all of my articles they like to see our magazine in print and they're super super supportive so like i and they have been the whole time but i know there was a couple of early little moments where i was like oh this is a bit awkward but no we're very very good
2: It's kind of funny, though, because I guess you had a bit of a mission behind that by wanting to be true to yourself and true to them. So, you were trying to make sure that dialogue was open. So, I guess you kind of had the right idea behind it. But I reckon if I said, if I rang my mum and I was like, I've had unprotected sex on the weekend, my mum would be like,
1: she would come around and she'd be like,
2: number one, why did you do that? Number two... Why did you feel the need to tell me that, you know?
1: Well, it's interesting because uh, given I have this platform with the Star Observer, I've written previously about some of my experiences Mm. um, around sex um, and some of the darker experiences as well. Like, I wrote an opinion piece maybe a year and a half ago about my experience at a sex on-premises venue uh, and sexual assault.
2: Were you assaulted?
1: Yeah. So, it uh, it was not at that time. It was maybe like a year beforehand, but the dialogue around sexual assault in the queer community was really invisible. So I thought, oh, I really want to write something about this. And the only way for people to really connect with it is if I can share my own experience. And so I was talking about how, I mean, there was a period where I frequented those venues quite a lot. So would, you, would
2: you say that you were addicted to going to those sorts of venues?
1: I wasn't addicted, but I just wasn't an app user. So like, whereas a lot of my peers and friends would be on Grinder and using that kind of stuff, the idea, f- funnily enough, of using those to meet other men was really confronting to me because the idea of going to some stranger's house and who knows what yeah, would Yeah,
2: yeah, I don't want that.
1: Yeah, I just didn't feel... Well, I'm going to
2: gonna go to an station and have
1: sex in the toilets. But that's why it's funny, yeah. Like, for me, like, when I was younger, yeah, the idea of going to Beats or sex on-premises venues was more appealing because I thought, well, I can go there and if I'm not interested in doing anything with anyone, I don't have to, whereas if I organise something on an app and I go over there, I feel I've, I've, I feel obligated, like, okay, yeah. we've come this far, to do something. But yeah, I just wrote about an experience... And it's one of quite a few, to be honest, but in particular where I I went to a sex premises venue and one of the people that I met up with was instigating sex with me. And initially I was like, yep, let's do it. Um, And then when it started and it wasn't pleasant at all, actually it was painful, I said to stop and the person didn't. and it lasted for quite a while. And I was... I mean, at the time, I was actually angry. I wasn't even upset. I was just really angry because that was one in a long line of experiences that I would witnessed or encountered firsthand at places like that where consent is just thrown out of the window. Like, I feel like at clubs as well, but in sex sometimes premises venues, a lot of men feel like it's fair game to do whatever they want because they're like, oh, you're here, obviously, to have sex. I'm going to do whatever I want to do.
2: That's terrifying.
1: It's terrifying, but it's also, I think earlier on when I was visiting those venues, yeah, I would just be so timid that I wouldn't say anything. Like if someone, if hands were, straight hands were roaming around or doing things that I didn't want them to do, I would either try to awkwardly move away or just not say anything because I wasn't sure how to respond. But then as I kind of became more sure of, you know, what was going on, I got really incensed. And I remember there was a period, I mean, probably the last stint that I was more regularly visiting where I would call people out. And I know that that's not the protocol in venues like that. Like people just, the the etiquette is to just kind of be quiet. Like it's a quiet space. You just do your thing. You're not supposed to really be loud. But I was just sick of seeing it because there'd be people, not even myself, people around me who were getting harassed by other people who wanted to do something with them. And they were, the other party was clearly not interested. And I would just call them out and say, that person's like, what are you doing? Like the person and said step no. Off. And same with myself. Like I would say the same thing. And it, they would either get, you know, a bit angry and say make some remark or walk off but it was one of those things where i'm like if people aren't getting called out on that then they're just going to think it's okay and i think that is a really toxic attitude to have in environments like that so yes it's having the platform that i do with star observer it means that my family and aware are forced to find out about some of these things and i remember after writing that article my sister called me because she was upset i guess because i'd written this article and she didn't know about that because i hadn't i hadn't communicated that i'm upset really.
2: listening to this story for you
1: yeah, it was, I, mean, I think
2: it's human nature. Whether I mean, it's when someone cares for you and they hear about someone being sexually assaulted like mm. that, it's terrifying, you know. And it's yeah. and immediately you start to worry. I mean, for me, my concern is: yes, you went through that, and I know you're a strong person, but what does sexually being assaulted in a sex on premise venue do to you long term?
1: yeah it's interesting it's been a a progression really because as I mentioned earlier on I just didn't know how to navigate that I remember the first time I ever went to a sex-and-premises venue it was actually with a friend Mm. and we were sitting in one of the rooms not even doing anything um, and another guy came along and started touching me and I had no interest in him whatsoever but I just didn't know what to do so I just didn't say anything um And over the course of however many months after that, it was similar. Like, I mean, I'd see... There were times when even, like... I mean, this just seems ridiculous. Like, if this happened in a public space, people would be outraged. Like, you don't do that. But because it's in that kind of venue, people think it's permissible. So, like, if I'm walking down one of the corridors in the room, you know, a guy would uh, grab my arm to try to guide me into a room and I would literally forcibly move my arm away but he wouldn't let go and there was one guy I remember that actually tried and actually dragged me halfway into the room and I was I kept saying no and then I had to walk away but he didn't get me all the way in there but it was one of those things where if that happened anywhere else people would be like you just don't do that like that's assault but then
2: is the culture of sex on premise venues changing like I mean is do you think that sort of stuff is still happening in there
1: well I know that um recently maybe I'm saying recently maybe it was like a year ago but because of Things like assault happening in those venues um, They've introduced photo IDs So like now when you go to them You have to get your ID scanned Which kind of r- removes the anonymity of it mm. um, Which I think probably lent itself in some way To people getting away with things like this Because they thought well
2: I can go in here and act like a fool Do
1: whatever I want to do and then leave No one's going to know who I am It's done I haven't actually been since they introduced those rules, but I would be curious to know if it has changed the culture at all. I think the culture would still be relatively the same because I don't think that the kind of thing changes overnight. But if it deters some people from acting in a certain way, I mean, that's, that's something. But yeah, I just speaking about that kind of stuff whether it's to the star observers audience whether it's to my family whether it's to my friends and i've had many conversations about sexual assault in the queer community to my friends um i think it's so important because if no one's talking about it then nothing's being done about it people aren't being privy to it and uh the culture will never change that's why i think talking about sex more broadly is really important because it just opens people's minds and actually makes it okay for other people to talk about sex um and take away some of that uh that cloak of invisibility that's often shrouded that it's often shrouded in
2: Well I have to commend you I mean at the same time that's a horrific incident I think you using your stories in your work mm. is incredibly brave and you are sharing quite a lot I mean how much of your own personal stories is there a limit to what you will use in the work that you do? Um,
1: oh, yeah, there's, there are things that I've experienced in the community that, like, I've never written about. And it's not because um, I'm ne- I don't necessarily want to, but it's it's because I don't feel that they necessarily serve a higher purpose. For that sexual assault one, it really was because... You,
2: you wanted know, to make a difference.
1: but Yeah, but also because that topic even now to be honest like it's so really written about it's so really spoken about and it's still so prevalent like i mean if i even at, at beats at sex on premises venues and the thing is when i posted that article 90 percent of the people that commented on it so our readers or people in the general public that saw it had quite nasty comments to make about it like they said things like oh well if you're going to this like what do you expect and or they said you know you should be flattered you know someone wants to
2: well that's disgusting
1: Well, you know what I mean? Like people were saying all this kind of stuff and I was just thinking, oh my goodness, this is the reason why I wrote it because I know there's so much misconception around these kind of spaces and what's allowed in them that even if this story, even if one person read that story and was like, oh yeah, I've never really thought about that when I've gone to that space, like how people can be like this and that might change their behavior there. I mean, that's worth it for me because I just really think that the more people talk about it, the more change that will happen.
2: I think when people don't or they're not educated on something, sometimes they can act badly Mm -hmm. and I think if culturally they don't actually have a really good experience or know what sex should be like maybe for some people that's what they think gay sex is you know being able to share your stories and being able to say no that's wrong I think does allow people to have more information out there to know you know what sex is consent between two people and that's the line
1: well you're right because and it's a broader structural thing it's actually such a good point because you know in school People are not taught... I mean, they're not taught about gay sex. I mean, they're taught about reproductive sex between a man and a woman. And so, yeah, you're right. Young LGBT people, gay. I'll talk about gay people in particular, aren't equipped with the knowledge of how to navigate relationships and sex in a respectful and consensual way. So, a lot of people, including myself, their first experience of navigating that was probably at a gay club. Like, my first time I went to a gay club was... It would have been the Peel, and it was in my first year of uni. And I actually remember that because it was a good night, but I still do even remember now that, like, I hooked up with a few different people, like, as in we kissed, like, we didn't do anything beyond that. You slut. I know. Oh, God, I'm slut I'm shaming just, you now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, keep going. <laughs> that, that night in particular, I remember I went into the bathrooms with one of the gentlemen that I'd met. And we were kissing and kind of touching each other. It didn't go beyond that, but he wanted it to go further than that. And I remember when I said, oh, I don't want to, because he wanted to basically have anal sex. And I said, I don't want to do that. And I could tell that he was annoyed, like as though, why are you coming in here if that's not what you're here to do? And I remember thinking afterwards, like, oh, that was kind of crap. I mean, the rest of the night was fine. It was fun. But that that was like my first kind of little indicator that there is a toxic culture in the queer community that there's almost like a lot of some men feel an entitlement to Mm. others bodies if they're in certain spaces. Because as I said, people wouldn't do that on the sidewalk. People wouldn't do that, whatever. But when you're in an alcohol-fueled environment or when you're in a sex-on-premises venue or you're cruising, whatever it is, people feel like all those rules fly out the window. And I'm like, no, they don't. Like, someone's body is still theirs and they still should be, you know, entitled to
2: It's right across the board that people need to start looking at sex Ah. and be like, it's consensual, but it needs to be enjoyable. And that needs to be re-looked at every moment of that sexual experience.
1: I agree. And the conversation around the kind of Me Too and Time's Up movements have been really important in terms of looking at power dynamics and sexual assault among mostly men and women mm. but I'm hoping that in a way it can kind of also draw a light onto yeah how that how that manifests in queer spaces because it does, like it one hundred percent does, but there just aren't very many examples of it put out in public platforms like the media.
2: Quite often we find ourselves in situations that are quite damaging and we don't actually recognize it and then seek help. I mean, in these mm. situations that we're talking about for you, what is your way of being able to self care and be able to work through maybe having allowed yourself to be in these situations, but then also being able to deal with it and move on.
1: Well, interestingly, at the time, like during the period where I was probably going to venues like uh, sex premises, venues and things like this, I think part of the way that I probably dealt with it, which wasn't the best, was if I had an experience like that, there, that wasn't great. I thought, well, I'll go again next week, and I'll have a good experience, and that'll make me feel better about it. Like I guess if I had left it on that. Bad experience, then I would have felt bad about myself. I've been like, "Well, why did I put myself? Why did I go there? Why did I do that?" Whereas if I went again and had a positive experience, I'm like, "Oh, this is why." Because like it's it can be fun. Like it's fun to meet someone and have a good time.
2: But I think there is a sign of strength and rationalization that I think that you were trying to combat with, mm. and then I think at the same time it could be stupidity. Because I mean, you could be leading yourself back into it. But what I do like about that overall is a sense of you've actually tried to put a stop to it in a way. Within the means of who you are, and that is that you're a journalist and you're a writer, and you've been able to share that story to to shine a light on it.
1: Yeah, and that's what I hope we can do. I mean, not to at the risk of sounding like a, a pageant answer, I mean, I, I really what I'm most passionate about and what I'm most proud about working for the Star Observer and as I have been for the last several years is the fact that not only my own story, but that we can share other people's stories that don't necessarily get the same platform. And in my mind, honestly, like anyone that reads it and has a new perspective about a particular issue or experience or person, even that's it's worth it for me. I love that. Like whenever I, we get messages or comments from people that say, "Ah, oh, thanks for putting this up there." Like I never see anything like this, or it's great to read something that we don't get to read normally. Like, I, that, yeah, that for me is that's the benefit. That's that's what makes it worthwhile. <laughs>
2: Well, what impact would you say that your sexuality had from you being a child to being an adult? And the reason why I ask that question is, I often feel like people might be on a path Mm. and then a sexuality can almost throw you off course, but also take you in a different direction. In what ways do you think your sexuality impacted who you've become today?
1: 100% it impacted the way who I've become today. I mean, the thing is, when I realized that I was gay in high school and I was moving through that, I was like, okay, I love the media and i also love to write so i was uh, i read a lot but i also enjoyed writing and i was like how can i marry that so i thought well journalism or the media might be a good way to go and because i was very much becoming aware of my same-sex identity i was like oh, i'll be really cool if i could marry writing or mm. media with the community and so honestly from high school i always thought i'd love to work in a role where i can write about social issues particularly affecting lgbti community and so after high school and in uni i tried as much as i could to do that i mean, in uni, I was freelancing and try to trying to get published. I got some stuff published in like the Age and different places about LGBTI related things, also family and domestic violence as well, because I, I was very I, I passionate about that as well. But yeah, my sexuality informed that completely. I mean, I, as soon as I realized I wanted to be in the media and journalism, I thought, well, if I can ultimately get somewhere where I'm able to not only write and be in the media, but write about stuff that's really important to me, like LGBTI issues, then that's all I can ask for.
2: And what age did you work at that you wanted to be like a journalist?
1: You know what? I think it was probably mid-high school because I liked I liked writing at the, from the start. Mm. I always enjoyed writing but maybe middle of the way through I was like, well, how can I write and do that for a living? And I thought, well, maybe the media and journalism might be a good way to do it because journalism is quite diverse. I mean, you can be a news reporter, you can be a feature writer, you can mm. do whatever. And I thought, well, that might be fun because then I get to write about important stories and potentially write for a newspaper or a broadcast or whatever it may be and so then from that point on I was like okay I'm pretty sure I want to do that so then I that informed my choices going forward like the classes that I took and all this kind of stuff so yeah probably from about mid-high school I realized I wanted to get into journalism and then over those years I then kind of thought well if I can get somewhere that I can maybe be able to do LGBTI stuff as well then that's perfect.
2: What do you think makes a good journalist?
1: That's a good question. I think passion for telling stories that aren't being told elsewhere is one thing because these days, especially in the digital age where we've got the internet and social media, most news publications are reporting about the same stuff 80% of the time. But if you're able to provide something different and I guess report to your audience something that they're not already privy to or savvy to, like whether it's a different angle on a story or a new story altogether, mm. I think that's really important. Like a passion or a keen eye for like things that aren't being told in the public space. An ability to write is is the obvious one. But I think that, to me, that's the main thing because if we're all just kind of following trends and writing about what's popular and what everyone else is writing about, I mean, that's great. But if you're not passionate or aren't driven to exposing things that aren't being spoken about, um, then what's the point?
2: Yeah, I think some people can have a lot of opinions, but they're not written well. And I think there's a combination and then a culmination of how a good journalist works and for you, you like to research because of what you do It you like to speak to people and you like to find the truth mm. and then can write it, which I think is, you know, such a big talent.
1: That's my favorite. That's honestly the, one of the, my, the best parts about my role and what it has been for the last several years is that, you know, meeting with people in the community, even if I've never met them before, and similar to what you're doing right now, speaking to people and finding out about their story mm. for me is just so rewarding because... I'm learning something from it and it's actually helping me as well, but I'm able to share that story, that issue that- To others, yeah. With others, like, and it's amazing. I don't even mean speaking to specific people, but even if it's writing about stories that people aren't writing about or that people aren't even reading, it's just really nice to be able to share that with the world. I really like that. And I know the Star Observer compared to big mainstream press has a relatively smaller platform, Mm. but I'm like, even if it's speaking directly to our community in particular and they're getting to read about something that they're not able to otherwise, I think that's really- yeah, I love that. That's my favourite part about it.
2: What advice would you give to Matthew if Matthew at the age of 12 was to be able to walk into the studio right now?
1: Oh, goodness. Hey, young Matthew. How are you going?
2: <laughs> how are you going? Big things are going to happen for you. Yeah.
1: I guess I would just reaffirm that it's good that 12-year-old Matthew sticks to his guns because that really was the period when I was coming into my own in terms of realising that I was gay and starting high school. I guess... I'd probably tell him not to take what people say on a daily basis as too much to heart. Like, I know at night times, like, it was quite difficult for me. Like, I would retreat into my own world. I'd say, don't be afraid to be loud and outspoken and tell people how you feel. You don't need to keep it kind of bottled up as as a coping mechanism. Yeah, I guess I would have just said, you know, stick to guns as I did, but, you know, also feel free to be open and loud and be yourself because the people that torment or abuse you never gonna hear from them again like literally as soon as high school finished i've not seen any of them so yeah what would you
2: say if you saw any of those people today like if right now instead of matthew at 12 walks in here yeah but say bully number one walks in here or that girl that came in what would you say to that girl in year seven that called you out about your sexuality Mm. before you were ready what would you say to her
1: I would probably just say that I hope the last decade has taught her the value of compassion and kindness because at the time, as a young teenager, she obviously... She didn't have that. She didn't have that, obviously. Like, she had no qualms about Mm. shredding me down in front of everyone in the class. So, I guess I would have hoped that having matured and being an older person, that she has not only met more diverse people in her life to open her eyes to people that aren't like her but also that yeah she just treats people with more kindness and compassion than she used to do
2: you think growing up that you always knew that you were quite special like did you think oh you would ever become this prolific being working in these spaces
1: i didn't actually think that like i I know i i said that i wanted to be in the media from about mid-high school but i didn't know that i'd be able to do this like work for star observer and all this kind of stuff i mean be nominated win awards well that yeah i didn't think any of that like i honestly thought in my mind i'm like well if i can get a cadetship somewhere at a even a regional place, whatever, that's a start and I'll see how I go. I know it's very competitive in the media, but I'll try my best. I'll put my best foot forward and try what I can. Um, and I really did. When I got into uni, I hit the ground running and tried to get as much things published as I could. I tried to meet people that I knew were in these spaces mm. so that I was you know, connected mm. to them. But I, I didn't perceive that at all. So the day that I got the call to say that I was I, I was hired as the Victorian journalist for Star Observer was amazing. Like I was over the moon. I was like, how incredible is this that A, this is my first job in journalism and the media like my first proper full job in media but also it's with star observer like it's literally with this 39 year strong lgbti publication i just i was so grateful and over the moon and happy and and it's only been better since then i mean the thing is before star observer i'd volunteered already in spaces like melbourne queer film festival and midsummer and stuff but in terms of actually being able to work and do it for a living i mean i could yeah i couldn't have foreseen that at all
2: and you'd also done like channel 31 with
1: yeah that's right Ben tv ben yeah TV.
2: And so, you sort of explored in those spaces.
1: Yeah. And I was was, honestly, if that was all it ever ended up being, if I never got the job at Star Observer, I would have still felt very fulfilled because volunteering in those spaces, whether it's TV or MQFF, I love doing. I mean, it's a great way to connect with the community, but it makes me feel like I'm helping out these amazing organizations as well. And that would have been enough for me. But to be able to also work in that space, which means not only that I'm doing it for a living, but I'm also able to meet so many more people in the community Mm. and help to share their stories. I mean, that's honestly, it's the cherry on top of an already amazing cake.
2: What state was the Star Observer in when you got to it? How was it functioning at the time?
1: It was doing pretty well at that stage because at that stage we actually had a Queensland, New South Wales and Victorian journalist. It was quite a full team and Ilias, my then editor, who I'm obviously forever indebted to because he gave me this first break, was doing a really good job. It had only, I think, relatively recently moved to a monthly magazine and, yeah, it was amazing. Like, I honestly, I think it was in a really good state at that stage. Obviously, as with any community thing, it ebbs and flows over the years. But particularly in those early stages when I first got the role, like, as far as I was aware, it was in a great shape.
2: What did you decide at that point you were going to bring to the publication?
1: Well, I think when I was being interviewed and also in the lead up, because I wanted to make sure I was sure of what I wanted to bring before. Mm. I didn't want to just kind of jump in for no reason just because I wanted the job. Like, I wanted to make sure I was really sure of what I wanted to do as well. And I remember articulating at the time and knowing in myself that I wanted to make sure that some of the more queer uh, underground or intersectional issues that maybe weren't being covered in the publication at the time were. So, like, for example, when it comes to people of color in the LGBTI community or sex workers or different things that definitely don't get the kind of credence in mainstream Mm. publications that they do in community publications, I wanted to make sure that I was bringing more of that. And I remember... In the interview, I think one of the questions that Elias asked me was, you know, what are five issues you're seeing as being really important right now? And there were there were obvious ones like marriage equality and things like this. But I actually veered away from that and mentioned some that I thought were important mainly because they weren't being spoken about. And I think that I probably played a part in me getting the role because it's important as a community publication, as with Joy, as with any LGBTI media, that we're helping to deliver news, features, opinions, profiles, people that aren't getting a platform elsewhere. Like Increasingly, mainstream media are actually giving a platform to LGBTI stories, but those stories are often co-opted by straight writers, and I think it's always going to be important for LGBTI people to write LGBTI stories. So when I got the job, I wanted to make sure that we were going to be adding more stories in there, intersectional stories that weren't being written anywhere else. And I, I feel that I helped to do that, particularly in those first couple of years. Before I became the editor, I really wanted to make sure that We were covering a breadth of issues, things that I was passionate about, but also that I felt weren't being really covered elsewhere.
2: I think that that's what you do extremely well is look for diversity amongst your storytelling because I always pick it up and read it and I walk away feeling I have always had a sense of something that I've walked away from. Mm. And with the Star Observer at the moment, I do feel like that there is a it's a beacon of light for very diverse topics, which I think is incredibly difficult to do. And I think we're only starting in the LGBTI Mm. community to be consciously aware that there is more than just LGBTI. There is actually millions of stories that Mm. spring off being transgender, being lesbian, being gay. There's more to those stories than just pigeonholing them down to gay men being extremely camp or women who shop at Bunnings. You know, we need to start (laughs) thinking about it in a bigger scale, which is where I think you've succeeded.
1: And this is not to dismiss the work of my predecessors, but I will say that previously I think Star Observer probably more so catered to a gay male audience and also a Sydney audience. So even though it's been national for quite some time, I think given the team is predominantly in Sydney, Mm. I think previously it was very much catering to a Sydney gay audience more than others, I would say. And for me, given, as you just mentioned, the times are changing and these kind of diverse stories are becoming more and more prominent and important I was like the only way we're going to move with the times is if we're giving a platform and visibility to all people in the community and not only and not to denigrate gay white men I mean we still include stories about them too but making sure that we're we're giving a seat at the table to everyone. So, like, beyond even reporting on these issues, commissioning writers who don't necessarily get the opportunity to write people from these diverse communities, I think, is really, really important to me. So, I appreciate you saying that you see the diversity in that. Oh, yeah,
2: because I think beforehand it seemed like a publication of sex and where to get it and who was seen at the clubs and pubs, you know, over the last week. And I just feel like what it was missing, though, was a real line of dialogue a real line of communication that's educational but interesting at the same time Mm. and those are a complex amount of issues to be able to put together and do correctly
1: and it's hard i mean the thing is we can't cover absolutely everything all the time and so i guess the way we try to navigate that at least in the last year or so i mean well since i've I've, i was promoted to editor is each issue we kind of theme it so Mm. like for example one issue might be around be around sorry rural and regional australia and in that issue We'll have multiple different articles looking at different through different lenses at different angles around the issues facing people mm. in those areas. You know, one issue might be around indigenous Indigenous LGBTI people. One might be uh, transgender diverse Australians. And I think by doing that, it allows us to present an issue that someone can flick through and learn about a lot of different things about an overarching kind of idea or theme. Absolutely. Yeah, my main thing for me, I know diversity often sounds like a buzzword, but that is really what I've strived to do with the publication: diversify its content its writers, and also the kind of stories that we tell. But also, you know, just helping to inform and educate people about news stories, features, people in the community they should be aware of, like different things like this. So, yeah, I'm really proud of the work that the team does and I hope that we can continue doing it.
2: How do you go about looking for stories that are outside of your story? Like when you go to cover lesbian stories, Mm. how do you go about covering that?
1: So, I try to tap into my network In the community. So, for example, depending on what the theme is, I want to make sure that, A, we've got writers that are part of that community so that it's from their own voice, Mm. some of the content, but also that I'm liaising with certain, like, for example, when we do the Indigenous LGBTI issue, I'm not going to pretend to know what the hot button issues are. I'm aware of quite a few of them, but we'll connect with um, Black Rainbow, for example, to see, okay, what's going on in this space? What should we be covering? What's Mm. important? Or for our youth issue now i'll chat with micah from minus 18 about what are the important issues in the youth community just to make sure that we're not misstepping like that we're we're putting to the fore the issues that need to be put at the fore right now you know our tagline on the magazine is you know setting australia's lgbti agenda since 1979 or whatever but the only way we can do that is if we're our fingers on the pulse and we're staying with the times and the way to do that is by liaising with and connecting with these groups and people that are their fingers are on the pulse you know with they're living that life they're literally living that life so you know when we did we did an issue around you know lgbti aging and aged care and i spoke to you know Catherine barrett from celebrate aging she was actually one of our guest writers things like this that's usually the way like i guess you know i i'll have an idea of obviously what some of the important issues are but actually liaising with some of these people that are actively part of that and getting them to write stuff for us as well is really yeah that's that's the main kind of way i do it
2: What's happening in the lesbian community at the moment?
1: <laughs> well, interestingly, I know that Dyke on Bikes in Melbourne are planning a ride on Sunday, I believe, this weekend, tomorrow. And they are also going to be riding as a way to kind of raise awareness around, I think, assault and abuse in the community, like in terms of harassment, not sexual, more just the kind of violence that some people mm. in the community face. But yeah, there's plenty of issues. I mean, there's honestly, the mainstream media focus on all of the really big button issues in the LGBTI community. When marriage equality was on, everyone was writing about it, understandably. But there are a lot of more, I guess, obscure or marginalized or underground issues that maybe aren't given enough credence in mainstream press that make the role of Joy, Star Observer, Archer magazine, whoever it is, vital because without us, these stories wouldn't get told or if they were being told, they would be told through a straight lens, like they wouldn't be told Mm. by queer writers. So there are really serious harmful issues affecting our community that really deserve the same sort of weight that marriage equality received, you know?
2: Oh, 100%. You know the way that I see this, and I think you'll understand because you like music, but we'll we'll talk about it in music. (laughs) I feel like marriage equality was quite commercialized, like the first album that someone releases, like Alanis Morissette or Natalie Imbruglia. They released like this really commercialized (laughs) CD, and then they follow it up with a second CD that's like, 20 tracks too long, and it's dealing with more complex issues that are more resonated to them. And I feel like that's where we are in society at the moment, where we've that's had a an analogy, yeah, commercialized something that was digestible to the wider community. Mm. And at the moment, now there's actually more complex, less understood, more fear involved, mm. stereotypes that need to be broken down in very different ways. And it probably can't get sorted the same way.
1: I agree, and I think education is a really important step because whenever we write about these issues in the Star Observer, there'll be people every now and again who'll comment things like, oh, why is this important? Like, for example, when we write about sexual racism in the community, right? Which is a
2: huge problem.
1: A big problem, widespread, oh not gosh. even just in Australia, everywhere, right? So, yeah. like, people, and that still happens today, like, people of colour have literally first-hand experience of experiencing sexual racism on dating apps, all that kind of stuff. And when we put that out there, there's always people in the comments that have something to say to kind of negate that experience. Like, oh, come on, like whatever, this, that and the other. And it just reminds me, and that's one particular issue, but it happens with a lot of different issues. It's just a really stark reminder of how, I guess, important it is to educate people in the community about these issues. Because if we want them to mobilize and be really passionate about fighting for them, they're not going to do that if they don't actually understand what the problem is. Mm. So, like, the media obviously plays a big part in that. But I'm hoping that through these issues that we publish or through the stories right online, like I said earlier, I know it sounds kind of trite, but even if it's like those few people that read it and think, oh, I never even thought about the issue that way before. Like, if they actually look at it and be like, oh, this this actually this is important, that's amazing. Like That's all we can ask for. We report the news and report the issues as a way to inform the community. But if it's educating them in the process, I mean, that's amazing.
2: That's hands down what you're supposed to be doing.
1: Exactly, yeah.
2: I'm already starting to see that, though, because I can't even tell you the amount of people that I knew that used to say, oh, it's totally okay for me on my dating app mm-hmm. to write no Asians, no femmes, no bottoms, yeah. no tops, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it's so weird, but that was a that was a norm. But I'm starting to hear that language being broken down, mm. and that must be coming from more people saying, "Hang on a sec, marriage wasn't the debate last year. It was equality, mm. and equality needs to be fought." In every way For everyone, yeah And that's where we're entering into the debate about political correctness Mm -hmm. My humour had always been so politically incorrect (laughs) But then someone said to me How hard is it to be kind? And then I really struggled with humour Like I used to think it was really funny And a lot of my humour would be calling people out on things Or being quite outrageous but you can still be funny by just being kind to other people.
1: Well, I agree. I think, you know, if humor or comedy is at the expense of someone that's, if you're punching below the belt, you know, yeah. if, if it's at the expense of someone that's below you, I mean, I just don't, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily funny. I think there are ways people can be funny without that. I think in terms of the, you know, the shifting kind of tides when it comes to apps and things like this, I remember because I'm such a keyboard warrior, I'm actually not. But like when I used to have the apps, I never would act on them whenever i saw someone's profile that said something like you know straight acting only mask for mask this kind of stuff i'd always message like i don't know why like i would write something like i don't know if anyone ever tells you this so I, in my mind i'm like i need to say something because like i need to call them to understand. out yeah so i did it never went anywhere like i'd always write something that either block me or say something crappy back like it, they would never engage with me and fair enough who am i they don't even know who i am
2: but still, um, I mean, that's opening up. That's being brave. That's being able to say. I was
1: behind my phone. I don't know. I just was like because I, I could
2: still do that. Your face <laughs> is there, or your torso. <laughs> no,
1: my my face. I was not a torso <laughs> person. It was my face. But I was just like these people don't understand the impact they're having on the broader community. Like for me, for, it's not even about young people. It's not even about people just entering the community. For anyone, if they have any hangups about the way they look, those are one hundred percent going to be reinforced by looking on an app because. There's a particular body type, a particular ethnicity, a particular kind of person that's valued above all others on those kind of spaces. And it's a shame because if there's a person of color, someone that's not able bodied, someone that maybe doesn't fit this kind of gym bodied physique, it's like... How do they feel? Yeah, they scroll through and they just see no one looks like them and people, the people that are lusted after are people that don't look like them. So it just makes someone feel crap. I think sexual preference is one thing. Like if someone's attracted to a particular body type or a particular look or a particular whatever, that's one thing. But when someone goes a step further and states on their profile something which you know is clearly like you know at the expense of another minority mm, like mm. no Asians, no femmes, whatever it may be, that's when you're actually actively discriminating at someone. If let's say hypothetically, uh, your personal preferences, you prefer someone that has muscle, someone that has a deep voice, whatever, fine. Actively pursue that on those apps. But if you're going to put on your profile, no femmes, no whatever, straight acting only, straight whatever, that's when you're actually actively discriminating and people on that app are going to see that and feel bad about themselves. I think that's where it toes the line. When it comes to race, again, if a white person, for example, is only sexually attracted to a person of color, I think the way when it veers into sexual racism is when it's a preference that's fetishized. So, for example, mm. if the reason that person is attracted to a particular race is because they associate that race with A, B, C, D, stereotypes or whatever. That's when it's like fetishizing that race and that's when it veers into sexual racism. I do wonder, and maybe this sounds unfair, but I do wonder like there are people that I've encountered, you know, in Melbourne, in the community who surround themselves with people that look, act, feel exactly like them. Like they all look the same, they all act the same, they feel the same. And I wonder like when that happens, like are they aware, like, do they ever wonder why that is? Like, I guess what I'm saying is, like, if you're mm. if you're in if your social environment is all uniform, like you're not exposed to any kind of diversity whatsoever in any form. I just wonder, like, do you ever think to yourself, like, why is that? I'm not not you, sorry. I mean, people that no, do I know that. what you're
2: saying. I, I look, I get what you're saying, and I think it's so true. But that's. So boring to me Like mm. I almost feel like if I I mean I'm allergic to people that are like me in personality yeah. <laughs> Like I don't want to hang out with that person mm-hmm. And like I'm absolutely drawn to different personality types yeah. And I don't have any friends that are two of the same mm. I mean they're all high achievers That's the only thing I've got in common with all of my friends Is they're exceptionally good at what they mm-hmm. do in their space So I'm obviously drawn to that But people's race or how they look is not interesting mm-hmm. And we need to get into that space.
1: That's what I think. I think if someone makes a point of being like, well, this person's race is my only point. of Like, that's what I'm looking for. This in particular, I guess you have to interrogate why that is. If it's because they find something particularly attractive, that's fine. But if it veers into fetishizing, and that goes both ways as well, that's when I think it becomes, it's not just a innocent sexual attraction. It's actually something different. So... They're narcissists. They're well, obsessed
2: with themselves and they're obsessed with anyone that looks like them or acts like them. That gay
1: boyfriend, sorry, the gay twin, whatever is that trope where like a lot of gay men <laughs> people look like them. That, oh my goodness, like that, yeah, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> What's
2: next for you coming up? Like, what are you going to be working on?
1: Next year is obviously our 40th anniversary. So, for me, I really want to make sure that we can make the most of that because I really want to help champion the publication for its long-standing history in the community and what it's done for the community sure and also set it up for the future so like next year's our 40th I want to make sure like we're at Midsummer and Mardi Gras marching in the parade
2: I'm with you 100% on that (laughs) have you got a message for the queer community that might be listening to this now
1: oh goodness I guess I would just say that obviously and actually as a journalist and someone in the media the news can be a very scary place and be a minefield for LGBTI people because day in and day out there are negative stories about trans people, mm. gay people, lesbian people, intersex people, whatever it may be. So I would say to make sure that your support network and the people you surround yourself with in life whether they're friends, chosen family or actual family are there with you as a support base because your mental health is really important so if you're being surrounded by literally a lot of negativity whether it's from Scott Morrison or whoever it may be, Lyle Shelton make sure you've got people in your life that can really boost you up because in those periods where you're feeling down and I've experienced it as well what really brings it around is when you've got those people that you can really lean on and trust for you to like to uplift you in those moments so even though marriage equality is over, you know we're far from equal so I'll just say as the fight continues, lend your voice where you can but if you're ever feeling down because of the state of the news and what's happening in the world, particularly in relation to LGBTI people you know, lean on and build that support network because that's that's vital.
2: Well, Matthew Wade from the Star Observer, thank
0: you so much for being able to join us on Word for Word. Thank you. Word for Word is presented and produced by Ben Norris from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Word for Word is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations across the community radio network.
1: Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy.